Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Taiwan On Air, Kong Zhong Zhipo, Taiwan. This is Adina Zemanik, one of the hosts of this podcast series. Today, we're here for a conversation about games. Oh, and our guest is Zhe Han Wu who obtained her PhD in drama and theater from the University of California, Irvine, jointly with UC San Diego. Zuhan is now the president of the North American Taiwan Studies Association and an editor for Taiwan Insights, which is an online academic magazine done by the University of Nottingham. I invited Zuhan today because her research performed an incredible feat from my perspective. Namely, it got me to play and to enjoy a video game for the first time in my life. And I hope that uh, this podcast can have a similar effect on our audience. Hi, Zuhan. Hello. It's nice to be here and thank you all for having me here. Thank you for being here as well. Let's begin with your interest in horror video games. Your doctoral project was in puppetry and in object performance. How do you get to video games from here? Yeah, so I, well, because I'm in the field of theater and drama, so I, I'm really into this specific part of theater called like puppetry and object performance. It then extends to my interest in the general performance fire with non-humans, which also includes like more ecological stuff like plants, rocks, trees, and then also something more like technological, like robots or machines. And then it's also like avatars. And once I read about people making that parallel between puppets and avatar. Basically, they said that avatars are puppets, but in a more like computer or technologically generated environment. And like avatars are also like puppets controlled or manipulated by players or puppeteers with invisible strings. So that is kind of like how I get into video games. So I get into it from the perspective of avatars, of the characters in those games. And then also in the part of my research, I talk about how puppets can be used as a medium to talk about stories that involve trauma and involve like traumatic history. And then in one of the games I think we'll talk about today, in that games, there are a lot of like imageries about puppetry in there. 
So I started to make that comparison between puppetry as an image in the game and also avatars as something controlled by the players in that specific game. So that's kind of like how I get into games, video games, and also horror games. I see. And you mentioned Taiwanese-style horror, Kongbu. This seems to be a rising genre in popular culture recently. What would you say are its central themes that you observed? For Taiwanese-style horror, or just like Kongbu. I think people use it to describe both like games and also a lot of recent films are considered to belong to these categories. In this genre, those games or films are not necessarily scary because of the realistic portrayal or depiction of the ghost or of death or of like zombies or something similar, but more of that kind of like eeriness or fear or the feeling of scare because of the mood or atmosphere they set or they created. So I think like it's more similar to like psychological horror and also that feeling of the constraint and also the aesthetics of this specific kind of horror game or horror film. And a lot of times these games or these films also involve folk religions or folk cultures or the religious traditions. So these are kind of like how I feel that we can categorize, where we can define what Taiwanese horror is. Okay, so it would be a kind of horror defined not so much by themes, or equally by themes, as by this atmosphere of uncanniness, or constraint, or fear from an unknown source. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like I said, a lot of these films or games, they use those imageries or images that people are familiar with, because in Taiwan, especially like the Taoist or Buddhist practices, Uh, something that people kind of encounter in their everyday life. So in these games or in these films, they use images from the Taoist religious practices, but then put them in a really different or unfamiliar scenario or scenes. So you kind of feel like you see something in these games that you're very familiar with in your everyday life, but then at the same time, the setting is entirely different. So you were kind of like brought to a really fantastical or a really magical world. And you do not know why these two things come together and what brings you there and what are you going to expect in your next journey in this game. So it's this unexpected combination between uh, known imagery and uh, an unknown setting that contributes to creating this mood of uncanniness and the fear. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. It's often the fact that uh, although they are set in unfamiliar or not realistic surroundings, games or films such as this reflect in some way indirectly certain concerns, anxieties that are relevant to the present. So would you connect this genre of games to contemporary Taiwan in any way? I think like the first time when the Taishi Kongbu, a Taiwanese-style horror, the term first came out when the game that we're going to talk about today, the game Detention, came out in 2017. And I think that's the first time people started to use this term extensively. And one of the, I probably wouldn't call it the theme, but then the setting of the game was set under the White Terror, which is the violent suppression of political dissidents in Taiwan under the martial law in the 1950s and 60s. So since then, a lot of these video games, especially like horror games, they either like have the game set under this specific temporality, or then they use like metaphors or symbols to kind of like connote or imply that, oh, this game has something to do with this specific time or specific history in Taiwan. So I think recently, more and more people are trying to use this white terror as a kind of symbol or metaphor in the game or as use game as a medium to talk about that part of the history that has been really discussed. 
Yes, and the white terror, I think, has been quite popular, a widespread issue for discussion in popular culture. What you're saying now reminds me of an article that I like very much, so I tend to cite it quite often. It's written by Mark Harrison, and it talks about narratives of Taiwanese identity. His main argument is about arts as a field of cultural production that is outside dominant structures of knowledge that are constructed by scholars or policymakers. He focuses on memory because it has no claims to objective truth, but it expresses it's linked to individual emotions, experience, secrets, and an individual thing outside these dominant structures of knowledge. And he says that the key theme in this field that is still relevant after so many years is violence that is inscribed in Taiwan's experience of modernity. Would you say that this is the case with this game, the white terror? can be placed against this background of violence that is still relevant. It hasn't been dealt with, or there's still a need of dealing with it today in Taiwan. Yeah, yeah, certainly. And I think it also reminds me of when I started doing this research about white terror, and like I said, I do puppetry and how like puppets are used as a means to talk about white terror. I think about this idea of like post-memory, because we're now living in the era of post-memory, but then people of my generation or someone younger than me we have no direct contact or experience with the white terror or with people who have survived or live under that specific temporality or history. So then what we learn about that part of history is either like from artworks, from literature, or from like games or from different media. Memory is always like secondhand. So I think like game recently has started to become a part of that kind of narrative that we try to unveil or try to unpack what really happened during that specific period of time. I think like particularly game as a medium is very unique in the sense that it requires engagement, like active engagement. You have to be in the game and then you have to make choices. It is not like watching a movie or reading a story about white terror that you are kind of like very distant from that temporality or reality. But then games, they just require you to be in that reality. So I think it is a way to invite people who do not have knowledge or experience with that history to kind of learn about it or be a part of it or try to get a sense of what happened under that specific time period. So that would be the function that these games, this sort of games could perform for young contemporary Taiwanese audiences. Let us now talk a bit more in details about the games themselves. Who produces these games? Where are they available? What are the main platforms where they can be played? So in these games, well, they're like starting from, like I said, 2017, when Detention, Fan Xiao by Red Candle Games first came out. There are a plethora of games that belong to the category of horror and then was developed in the next probably like five, six years. So Detention in 2017 produced by Red Candle Games. And then two years later, the same developer produced Devotion. But this games, I kind of like put it aside because it belongs to a slightly different category. But then later on in 2019 and 2022, there is a game called Pa Gui. It's in Taiwanese and Hokkien, which just means like hitting the ghost or like fighting against the ghost. It has two episodes that was published like 2019 and 2022 respectively. And then also in 2020, there is a game called Half-Light. So these games that are released within three to four years, they kind of all have very similar central theme, or all of them, I would say, are related to the White Terror. It is also something related to the mission of our government 
our government has been working on this part of the transitional justice in Taiwan in the past few years. So I think the creation of these games are closely tied to the sociopolitical environments or the government policy in that specific time period. Okay, I see. So this is the shared aspects that these games have in common, namely first the preoccupation with history with the white terror. And second, the fact that they may echo government's orientation towards transitional justice. The producers are independent. Are these games successful both in Taiwan and abroad? Do they sell? And what are the main platforms where they are available? Most of these games are available on Steam. Usually they will have a first demo, which is usually just like a 10 minutes or 20 minutes game that were released to, I would say, streamers on the internet. So then the audience would get to know or learn about the games probably like half years or one year before they are officially released. So they started as a demo and after they get those reception and also feedback from the streamers and their audiences, they will start this very long process of making it into a full game or making it more complete or make correction to some parts of the games along the way. And then they will eventually, after maybe one year or six months, they will release on Steam. So that is the main platform for these games. And if they got really nice feedback or reception on Steam, they will be on other platforms where there will also be like physical copy of the games that can be purchased. So these are games produced by individuals or small companies. And I think that Half-Life was produced initially as a graduation project. Yes, I think so. I think like they first produced by a group of students in college and as their graduation production. So I also saw like some of the comments saying that while the first half or the first few parts of the games are really like not that good, mainly because they are just a part of their graduation requirement. But then later on, as they develop the game further, it has more inputs and more sophisticated designs to the games, playing experience. So that is something I also found really interesting, like how they start. And are they successful after they are released on Steam or other platforms? Are they successful in Taiwan and abroad? I think like for the 2017 detention, it is a huge success. It has been very well received, both like among the domestic players and also the international players. And that's how we came up with this term Taiwanese horror. For these other games, I think it has not as a huge success than Detention, but then still they got quite a lot of attention from especially the domestic players because people are just like so excited to see more and more games by Taiwanese indie developers being released on Steam and on those like international or huge platforms. So for Detention and the other games by the same developer, the Red Candle Games Devotion, these two games have received like huge success. But then for the others, I don't think that they have been that well received comparing to the first two. Let's focus now more on Detention. What is this game about? When is it set and what is it about? Detention is set roughly in 1950s, 60s Taiwan under the martial law. And it begins with two students who are Wei and Rei, Wei Zhongting and Fang Reixing. They found themselves trapped in the Greenwood High School and the high school they attended, which has suddenly become unsettling and deserted and haunted by like monsters. So when they woke up from their dreams, they found themselves trapped. And while they tried to hide from the unrecognizable ghostly creatures, the cursed school's darkest past is slowly unveiled. And then they went into this puzzle game mystery and trying to find their way out at the same time. This game, I think it is unique because it is a 2D horror adventure game. And I think like for a lot of, especially the mainstream games, mainstream horror games, very rarely they are 2D. Most of the time they need to be 3D to be like realistic enough to be scary. But then this game, it is scary as a 2D horror game. 
this is exactly what got me into it. There are three reasons why I like this game. Two main reasons and one secondary one, in fact. Unlike other games that I had seen, which were indeed 3D and then photorealistic, this game is 2D and looks more like a comic settings or a comic book or a cartoon style. The second reason was that the characters do not speak. You cannot hear their voice. You can only see their utterances in subtitles. So these were the two main reasons why I like this game. And the third one, a reason that intrigued me, was the fact that the main character, a uh, main female character, Ray, is attacked by monsters or by ghosts, but this doesn't deter her ultimately. So she doesn't die and the game doesn't end. This intrigued me. And I know that your research has focused on this aspect. So could you please tell us more about this 2D characteristic, the lack of speech, and then maybe also the fact that the main character does not die when attacked by monsters? Sure. I also like really like it because it is a 2D game and I also enjoy its aesthetics. Like, first of all, I think the aesthetics of this game is just amazing. It is really nicely made, even as considered as an animation. It is a really nice animation. And I think when I started doing my research about why we use puppetry as a medium to talk about, like it offers a way for us to talk about white hair, but then not in that realistic way or not in the ways that would potentially be triggering to people who have experienced that kind of traumatic past. Because puppetry, if we see it, we know that it is not real. It is essentially unreal. So then we would not mistaken it as something that really happened before. So I would say like in my own research, I feel like it provides a certain safe distance for people to be engaged with that part of the trauma or the painful history. And I think it is very similar to the game, to detention as well. It is 2D. So while there is no way, well, I shouldn't put it that way, but then I feel like it gives people a chance to not mistake it as the reality and also for people to always have a chance to step back. To just like give us some time to see, oh, this is just a game. It is scary, but it is just a game. So then we can always be safe while playing this game. But at the same time, it kind of lure you into that story and lure you into that atmosphere. So you can still feel that sense of what it is like to be under white terror, under surveillance, under censorship in that time. One other thing I noticed and I'm also really intrigued by is that the characters in this game and the game Detention do not speak. None of the characters speak. And I think it really resembles the idea that during that specific period of time, most people, especially the victims, they're either silenced or they're just unable to speak for themselves. So I think the design of the characters are also mimicking that kind of atmosphere and of that specific history. And also in the game, the characters don't die. Even when they were chased by the monsters and they were attacked by the monsters, eventually, as a game player, you can always start again. You can always try and error, make different decisions and do different actions in the game. I think it really resembles the idea that in that time period under the White Terror, even though you don't have much choices, but you can still try to make something out of it. And also as a character, as a game players nowadays in the present time, we can always make different choices to see if there will be different outcomes. And I think that's the power of game or power of game playing itself. Okay, thank you. Another question that I had was, we already talked about what this game can do for its Taiwanese audiences. So a way of dealing with the traumatic past. 
But what about non-Taiwanese audiences? What can this game do for international audiences? So can it be effective for Taiwan's public diplomacy, do you think? Yeah, I think it's definitely effective for Taiwan's public diplomacy, especially I think specifically for detention. It has been really well received around the world and it has also top three on Steam, on the platform Steam when it was first released. So even people who do not understand the historical or political connotations behind this game, they could still find the game fun and entertaining. And also, I think, like, simply, since I watch quite a lot of foreign streamers or international streamers on YouTube playing this game, even though they don't understand anything about the history of Taiwan or about Taiwan at the very least, they could still find the story intriguing and also liking that aesthetics or appreciate the aesthetics and the fantasy of that story. I think, again, once again, detention as a game, as an entertainment, it is not necessarily about history or about like politics, but about how the individuals experience a relationship with their family. And then it has just happened to set in that time period of the white terror. And then what is most important about this game is how an individual interact with that time period and with the past. Another thing that I noticed from online forum Reddit, a lot of second or third generation Taiwanese Americans, they just expressed that it is through this game that they started to be interested in or they started to want to learn about the history of their parents' home, of their parents' home country. So I think this detention really provides an opportunity or a platform for people to talk about Taiwan. Okay, I see. So for second-generation Taiwanese emigrants, Taiwanese settled elsewhere in the world, it can play the function of allowing them to come to know Taiwan. And on the other hand, for non-Taiwanese international audiences, this game can be simply intriguing or entertaining. And here I think there may be a kind of dilemma or conundrum or a problem because we have dealing with trauma on the one hand and this idea of entertainment on the other. So an ethical issue may appear here. How does the game negotiate between the two? Or how can we talk about the two together? Wouldn't entertainment be in danger to move to the foreground and obscure the traumatic history part, which is very important? Yeah, exactly. I think there is definitely a very complicated interplay between the game being an entertainment and the game being something about a nation's historical trauma. And I think for detention and for most of the games that I mentioned in this episode is that they use metaphors. There are extensive use of metaphors in the games. None of these games has direct or blatant representation or mention of the actual historical events. So authenticity or authentic representation of the history is never the most important part or the central idea that is highlighted in the promotion of these games. Instead, I think all of the games, especially like Detention, it really highlights, they use horror and they use fantasy to highlight the fictionality, to tell people that, oh, this is not real. This might be set in historical time period that actually happened, but then the story itself is not real. So same with the idea of using 2D instead of 3D photorealistic portrayal of the past or of the characters. And finally, again, the games, they focus on individuals' experiences and engagement with the history instead of an authentic experience of the actual person who really like live in the past. So I think these are kind of the ways to deal with the ethical concerns of the game being entertainment, being about trauma. 
Meanwhile, I still think this is a question, and this is the problem that we all have to kind of like ponder upon, like how to really balance out these different issues in the same game or in the same platform. So your argument would be that the game sort of avoids this uh, or is ambiguous about what could be potentially an ethical dilemma by blurring the distinction between national history and then individual history Mm -hmm. and also creating the distancing effect by the 2D design. Yeah, exactly. Now, because I am familiar with your research, but our audiences are not, I have found some ideas that uh, I was going to ask you to elaborate on, some interesting ones apart from the ones that we have already talked about. One of them is the idea of human manipulation. And you already mentioned, but I'm not sure if you named it, you mentioned this idea of restricted agency. So could you please say a bit more about human manipulation and restricted agency and also the ideas of resistance and resilience? Sure. Earlier, I think I talked about the idea of avatars or game avatars being very similar or parallels with the idea of puppets, like puppet in real life. And like puppets, we have puppeteers behind the scenes to control or to manipulate the movements of the puppets. So in a lot of cases, the reasons why puppets are used in performance because puppets can achieve the movements and motions that cannot be done by humans. Do flip and run and also fly and do all these movements that humans cannot do. It is pretty much the same with the avatars. Avatars can achieve a lot of things that we cannot achieve or we cannot do as an actual human being with our own physicality. But meanwhile, since puppets are made of different distinct materials, there are certainly some actions that cannot be done by them on the other hand. For instance, if you want puppets to move their right hand, sometimes they can just move it with a stick or with a rod or with streams. But sometimes it is just hard to achieve those very accurate or very exquisite movements or precise movements. And I think the same with the avatars. There are so many things that can be done by avatars, but at the same time, there are way too many other things that cannot be done. So I call it like restricted agency, like an avatar. It has agency because as a game player, you can ask the avatars to do the things for you. But meanwhile, there are just so many choices in the game that you can do, especially like for detention. Most of the time, there are just two options. They will have the lines spoken and then they will give you two options to choose from. So even though you know that this could be a trick, this could be kind of somewhere that you don't want to go, but you still have to choose between these two and have your avatar carry out those actions. So this is what I call restricted agency. And I think it is very similar to what the victims has experienced under the white terror. It is not like they couldn't do anything, but then the choices were very limited. So I think the ideas of puppets or avatars really mimic or resembles that kind of actions, emotions, and that kind of situation, condition under the white terror. As for the resistance and resilience, I think first of all, again, talking about puppets, the reasons why puppets are, in my opinion, very flexible and very resilient is because they are not human. They're not actual humans, and they've always been considered as unreal. And this idea of being kind of like similar to humans, but then not exactly human-like, kind of provide the puppets more flexibilities and more possibilities to be or become something else. So you're kind of playing with that flexibilities of being similar, but then not quite. And for the games as well, the atmosphere of this game, it is a horror game. So there are a lot of ghosts existing. And again, while you're trying to escape from the ghosts, 
you can make choices how you want to do what you want to do to those ghosts. And for that hauntedness created by the atmospheres and the ghosts, it is just something that has been unspoken or unrepresentable or repressed. So while us being in the game, we're all kind of living that kind of atmosphere or that kind of condition and feeling those repressed feelings while trying to do something about it. So for me, I think the game itself really provides the players an experience or a platform to feel what the victims have felt while giving them agency, giving them choices to make and giving them a way try to get out of the hauntedness, get out of those ghostly atmosphere. So this is why I feel that this game can be a way to carry out the resistance and then to uh, be a force of resilience for the players. It's interesting that you've been talking about avatars in the sense of puppets so far, and the avatar being real and not quite real at the same time. But I just remember that in the game, there are certain elements that are explicitly about puppet theater. They don't do anything in the setting, in the background. There is a moment when you can see puppets and there are some tasks involving puppets. So yes, this is an additional element related to puppetry. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to say that this is exactly how I get into this specific game as a part of my own like book project or dissertation research. I first look at those puppets and then in the game, especially those puppets that are used in the games are Daishi, which means Taiwanese or Chinese golf puppetry. And those are really very popular folk culture or popular culture and popular tradition among Taiwan's local community. So I really see the reason why they're using those puppets is trying to create the feeling that I mentioned early on as the uncanny. We see those puppets as something that's so familiar, but then now they're placed in this haunted house and then be a stand-in for the victims of the white terror. And then we see those puppets as kind of like the manifestation of those ghosts or the hauntedness of the time. They were something and that belongs to the past, but when the avatars, when the characters encounter those puppets, sometimes they have to get away from it, but sometimes they're forced to interact with the past or interact with those victims. So I'm just like very fascinated by this idea of how the past and the present they kind of belong to the same temporalities and interact and exchange. That's something I found extremely fascinating and intriguing for this game. Now we need to slowly wrap up our conversation about the game or games. So I have one last question about this topic, namely, you already mentioned the official discourse and the turn towards transitional justice earlier on in our conversation. But what is also part of the official discourse has also been part of uh, official initiatives or projects during the last few years is government support for animation, comics and games since around 2016 both from the Ministry of Culture and from the newly established Taiwan Creative Content Agency. So can you indeed see this sort of commitment reflecting in the field of games? And if yes, then how? Yeah, I definitely see that the commitment has made the game industry more vibrant in Taiwan, especially for independent developers. I think the initiative started around like 2016 and then Detention was first released in 2017. And since then, there were just like so many games by independent developers in Taiwan that has been able to make onto like Steam and made onto international global stage. Another thing is that the developers are more likely to invest in games of diverse themes and styles and more innovative designs. And all thanks to the initiatives and all these projects that has been invested in promoting the games and promoting the popular culture in Taiwan. 
again, for these developers and also for these games since the release of Detention in 2017, they are able to gain more visibilities on global stage for sure because of the money and the resources that has been invested in them. I think I also mentioned this early on that many of these developers will send demos to streamers probably like six months or a year ahead of the official release day for these streamers to play and to show the game, show the aesthetics or show the story of the games to their audiences. And I think this also really helped to reach more audiences and reach more potential players that would eventually end up purchasing the game once they were released. So I think the industry itself has become more robust and definitely more vibrant thanks to the Taiwan's Ministry of Culture and TICCA's attempts. And now one last question for you as a researcher. Where do you go from here? Are you going to continue your research into games? Are you going to do something different? I am still very interested in the games and I will definitely continue this research and try to work with it further. And also like Red Candle Games, as I just noticed, they will actually be releasing a new games, I think in the near future. So I'm very excited about that. And another thing that I have also been spending quite a lot of time with is the idea of VR. It includes both like VR games and VR films. So like how the virtual reality as a medium, just like the games as a medium, can provide an exchange or provide a platform for us to talk about the interplay between the past and the present and the virtual or the fictional versus the real. So I'm still very intrigued by these different ideas and how they come together and provide a unique, engaged or immersive experiences for the players and for the audience. So yeah, I'm definitely continuing the research on the game and also the research of virtual realities are two things that I'm most interested in right now. Yes, and very much timely because the VR film is also developing in Taiwan. So I'm, I'm very much looking forward to hearing more about your future research. And maybe we can meet again in this context and do another podcast about VR. <laughs> yes, that would be amazing. Very much looking forward to that and, uh, and keeping my fingers crossed. So thank you very much again for being with us today and looking forward to future developments. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. Thanks. Bye.